Hi there, you're listening to the Practical Stoic Podcast with your host, me, Simon Drew. If you'd like to listen to over 200 episodes that were recorded before 2020, then you can head to my Patreon site. It's patreon.com forward slash Simon J.E. Drew. We'd love to have you there and any support is greatly appreciated. We'd love to also have you on our Facebook community, The Practical Stoic Mastermind. But for now, enjoy the show. Hi there, my name's Simon Drew and welcome to The Practical Stoic Podcast. Now, guys, I'm really excited today. We've got a great interview for you that I did with Professor Scott Aiken. Now, uh, Scott is such a nice guy. I can't wait to have him back on the show many more times in the future. It was a thrilling conversation for me. We talked about all kinds of things to do with stoicism. We even touched a little bit on uh, on the art of debate, the art of coming up with a good argument. Uh, so heaps of good stuff in here for you. But first, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Scott. So Uh, Scott is an American philosopher and assistant professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, where he also holds a joint appointment in the classics. Uh, He earned an MA in philosophy from the University of Montana in 1999 and a PhD in philosophy from Vanderbilt University in 2006. Uh, So his principal areas of research are epistemology, argumentation theory, uh, ancient philosophy and pragmatism. And on top of all this, as if he's not busy enough, he's also the co-author of a great book called Why We Argue and How We Should, A Guide to Political Disagreement. So very interesting person. And I tell you what, uh, you're going to love this interview. So I've put all of the links uh, to where you can find Scott online in the show notes and also to where you can go and buy his book, uh, which seriously, go out and get it and also let him know how much you appreciate him coming on the show. But without any further ado, I present to you Professor Scott Aiken. Okay, so we are live here with Scott Aiken, so Professor Scott Aiken, and uh, and I am... I'm, as I've just been saying beforehand, I'm so excited to, to have you on the show. Um, you know, you're somebody who, you know, well, I'm, I'm always interested in having discussions with, you know, philosophers, professors, uh, psychologists, these people in the academic sphere, because that's so not where I am. And so it really helps me to like to be in that space and to talk to people like yourself. But what I'm always interested in um, and I'll give you a chance to tell us a little bit more about yourself, but but I'd like you to segue into how you got into philosophy as well, how that became such a, an integral part of your life. Well, first off, thanks for having me. Uh, really appreciate uh, the time and the effort that you put into preparing for this interview and the, the exposure that you've given to me and to the ideas. And so, uh, th- so thanks for that. Uh, really appreciate it. No, that's um, awesome. How did I get into philosophy? So, uh, so it's funny, I... Um, there were really kind of two intersecting uh, tales to tell. Uh, one was that um, I was was always kind of a stridently independent mind, um, and so uh, always asking the whys and things like that, and uh, really appreciating um, interesting answer uh, the answers. Inter- um, appreciated how sometimes the answers conflicted. Um, hmm. uh, one of the things that, and so I was, I wanted to be a scientist. I wanted to be a physicist. Um, I wanted to be, I wanted to know about every, I really kind of wanted to know about everything. And initially I thought that physics was going to be the place for me to do that. Mm. Um, and so, uh, so when I was in high school and even when I went, uh, first went to college, uh, that was where my interests were. Um, I also, so the second arc to this story was that uh, from a very early age, I was really impressed by uh, just stories out of Greece. The, the Greeks were just interesting. Uh, yeah. the, they were, the, the, their physicists were interesting. Their philosophers were interesting. Their myths were interesting. Their history, they were just interesting folks. And part of it's just the, that they're easily to romanticize. They're easily romanticizable. And it's this sort of um, uh, kind of, crucible of, uh, of civilization kind of thought with Greece. Uh, and so from a very early age, I was just really taken with the Greeks. And so, uh, the second part of this is that when I went to college, I also started, uh, in on a classics major. Uh, and so I was, uh, regularly reading, um, reading these 
ancient authors and I, that I wanted to learn Latin. And so it was, we're learning Latin too, along with Greek. Um, and, uh, and I was finding that as we were reading these texts, um, I was wanting to argue back. Yeah. Uh, so we would, for example, be reading Seneca or we would be reading, uh, Thucydides or something like that. And Thucydides would make what looked like a sort of an incorrect inference about what he, what was in front of him. And I would yeah. want to argue with Thucydides or I'd want to argue back with Seneca. Um, and, um, my classics professors would say, this is excellent. Um, but there's a whole discipline devoted to what you're doing here. Um, yeah. we're trying to get straight about what they said. Uh, there's a whole discipline about taking up with them and saying that they're wrong. And that's called philosophy. Um, and so, uh, and so that was one of my sort of first places where, where I, where it became clear to me that, uh, my interest in big questions, uh, my interest in the past and these sort of ongoing conversations, uh, philosophy was going to be the home for me to be able to do that. And so, uh, for as good and uh, the funny thing was, is that at first I thought that it was because I was just not good at reading. I thought my Latin wasn't good enough because I was like, I'm disagreeing with Seneca. It's just (laughs) because my Latin's not good enough. Uh, but it turned out, right, that uh, that you get you do get to gr- disagree with the greats. There is that kind of you get to speak, you get to talk back. Um, mm. And so I, thought, I found that really liberating. I found the intellectual, um, the intellectual freedom, um, uh, the 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 opportunity uh, to to be audacious uh, and wise on your own uh, yeah. uh, was something that was really appealing to me. Uh, and so, um, so I was. I finished as a classics major uh, as an undergraduate, uh, and uh, and then um, spent some time working in uh, a bar and a lumber mill in Montana. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, and then went to graduate school in philosophy. I love it. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing all that. And there's man, there's so much good stuff that we're going to talk about just based on your introduction, right? Because I, I think. Um, that's one of the beautiful things about uh, about Greek philosophy is that it really they encouraged us to argue with them, right? There was a culture of argument and, and discourse back then, right? It was like, hey, if you've got a good enough philosophy, uh, then you should be able to take any possible argument from anybody against your philosophy, and you should be able to at least stand up and have a good conversation about it, because that's how Absolutely. we learn, right? And the the I story think, of the two first. Oh, please go ahead. Well, no, no. I was just going to say, uh, just quickly. I, th- I think one thing that we do far too often in today's society, and and I catch myself doing this all the time. I'll open a book, I'll start reading from Seneca, and even if I know at the back of my mind that something that he does says doesn't quite make sense, I'll be like, oh well, it's Seneca. Who am I to argue against it? That's the wrong way to <laughs> right. go, right? Like like they encouraged us, just like Seneca said, like the teachers of old they're our teachers, not our masters, right? Like we're supposed to learn from them, but we're also supposed to bring it into our own modern context and bring a new understanding. But go on with what you were saying. Oh yeah. So, uh, just, just the, 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 the culture of that disputation, uh, was one that, uh, was even shown with the first relationship between the first great two, two first two philosophers in the story of, the, of Western philosophy, Thales, uh, the Milesian and uh, his student, uh, Anaximander, uh, disagreed profoundly about everything. Yeah. And so, the, in fact, it might even be said that Thales' best student was his, also his best critic. Uh, yeah. so, uh, so even there, just at the very beginning of this discipline, it's not about uh, intellectual obedience. It's mm-hmm. about intellectual autonomy, seeing things right uh, as best uh, by your best lights. Of course, yeah. And, and, and I think... Um, I'm going to use this as a segue into immediately at the start of our conversation, getting into the deeper topics that we're dealing with right now, right? Because okay. I think I think what's so um, what's so interesting about uh, your own work is uh, so you wrote a book called Why We Argue and How We Should, right? About political discourse and and what I'm what I've been really interested in lately is the political uh, environment which was able to foster such great philosophers back in Athens and that that whole Greek empire, right? Because something happened back then that really allowed for more people to flourish in terms of thinking, arguing, debating, really coming up with ideas, right? And 
what we've seen today is an absolute polarization in in our society obviously and you wrote this book back in 2014 is that correct or uh yeah the first edition was in 2014 uh yeah. the second edition came out in uh 2018 all yeah. all redone uh in light of brexit and the trump uh yeah. win it's almost like you prophesied <laughs> it getting even worse <laughs> right <laughs> but um what i'm interested in is um i i guess how do you see us getting back to that point where we can not disdain argument, not disdain debate, but look at it as some, and I think we're getting there because there's a lot of popularity around debating in, in our modern society now, but how do we get back to that point where we can have discussions with people uh, knowing that it's a good thing to disagree and to work through the arguments, right? Um, well, uh, let me pause for a second and note that um, the Why We Argue book is uh, is a book that is in the spirit of Stoicism. Uh, yeah. It's civically minded. Uh, it's a form of uh, a political rationalism that mm -hmm. we see ourselves uh, and govern in light of our shared reason. Yeah. Um, that's uh, And that's an old Stoic Republican commitment. Yeah. Uh, so you see, so, see it sort of as a kind of uh, uh, calling back to the Catonian uh, model uh, that we see, for example, from Cicero's uh, uh, On the Republic. And so uh, the aspirations of that book uh, are really out of an old Stoic Republican commitment. Hmm. Um, how we, re how we um, can reachieve it requires a handful of things. One of them is um, a little bit of intellectual humility, uh, mm. We've got to be uh, because if we because if argument is going to be something that we use as a tool to resolve disagreements, we have to be open to argument changing our minds too. Yeah, uh, we give arguments, but but we also are, have to be receivers of mm. argument. And uh, thinking on the one hand of critical thinking like it's just uh, self defense is the wrong model. It is self defense. Uh, yeah, but it also is going to be something that's self defense against yourself. Yeah. Uh, and that's an important that's an important thing, namely that uh, one of the biggest problems is not the 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 fact that we believe others bullshit. It's that we believe our own. Yeah. And uh, and so the crucial thing is being able to being able to be open to hearing that. Uh, and that's the, one of the reasons why um, we need to have friends and we need to have civic friends. And that means mm. folks that are going to disagree with us and maybe who we think are wrong about a lot of things. Uh, yeah. But that that civic friendship is one that allows us to be able to hear each other, uh, be mm. able to see that we are in a kind of a joint um, enterprise of self-government yeah. together. And that means that, you know, for however deep those disagreements are, uh, I don't like your barking dog is a relatively shallow one. Yeah. Um, we disagree about uh, the sanctity of the life of a fetus is a deeper one um, to, uh, to, 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 to what, what, who gets to live where in our society is a mm. particularly who gets to be a member of us uh, is so immigration is going to be one of those places mm. where in fact that is a deliberation about who we are and who gets to be part of we. Uh, mm. Those disagreements are uh, deep and abiding and ones that in fact uh, if they were just personal relationships, if it was just that we were living together and we were roommates or flatmates, as you yeah. say in London, uh, uh, we we might move out. But we don't have that option. We we live here together, uh, and as a consequence, we have to find ways to uh, value each other. Um, and this is one of the reasons why uh, Stoicism, again, I think, is a place where uh, we have some resources. Yeah. One of them is not taking things so personally. Mm -hmm. um, and so being able to see that disagreement uh, is the manifestation of the rationality of, of another person trying to do things uh, by their best lights. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, and so not, not attributing evil motives to others. Again, that's a kind of a weird stoic and kind of Socratic thought, which is look, they, they do bad things, not because they want to do bad things. They do bad things because they're wrong about what's good. Uh, yeah. And, and so Maintaining that attitude um, is 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 an important feature 
Um, mm. And again, not taking it too per- not taking it too personally, not feeling like you've been harmed, uh, yeah. and that that retributive inclination, the inclination of anger, uh, is so destructive of the fabric of civic life. Uh, in the exact same way that it can be destructive of a personal relationship, it's very very destructive of civic <clears throat> life because mm. personal relationships you got other stuff that buoys it. Uh, with civic life, it's like, look, I don't know these people from Adam, but you yeah. know, I but if I know who they voted for now. Now they're persona non grata for me, uh, and that's a, and that and that's a that's a kind of a tenuous place that we are with each other. Um, yeah. So rekindling that is hard. Um, so my colleague Robert Talese, who I co-wrote uh, "Why We Argue With," has been and doing a just lot. Just on of a research. note, we might we might have to get you both on the show as well <laughs> to just to yeah. talk about this sort of stuff. That'd be great. Yeah. So I I I, I kind of went down a rabbit hole on this, but I'll just give you a quick nugget about yeah, Rob's please. research. Rob's research is about really rekindling uh, civic friendship. Uh, mm. What the challenge of it is. Uh, so he's done work on uh, understanding how polarization works. Yeah. Uh, Rob's research has shown that polarization is not just a cognitive phenomenon; it's an emotional phenomenon. And in mm. fact, that seems to be the primary mover of it. It shows up as a cognitive feature, but it's really motivated by uh, by emotional uh, by emotional background. Mm. And the crucial and so whatever cognitive whatever cognitive stuff that you do is really a kind of um, is only a kind of a papering over the the main f- f- uh, um, causes for why yeah. polarization is working. Uh, what you need is a reorientation, uh, to, a, a, a kind of a different comportment towards the folks around you. Uh, and the challenge is being able to find places where you can make that connection with folks regardless of their political orientation. Um, yeah. It turns out that the modern world just doesn't have those places, right? It's like wherever you go shopping or get your coffee or even where you go on vacation uh, is already pretty well predicted by your politics. And so you vacation yeah. even with people who you agree with politically. You get your coffee yeah. – with you work with you live by people that you generally politically agree with and so um establishing civic friendship independently of political orientation turns out to be a much more difficult thing given the way that we that the the functions of polarization have sort of sorted us uh pretty pretty significantly yeah i think um i I think you there's so much value in what you just said there and I, i i'm I haven't had the chance to read the book, but I'm very excited to get into it because I've been listening to some interviews that you've done and stuff like that. And, you know, as soon as you see that people are literally getting divorces because they disagree politically, it's like, man, we need to figure out a way, right, to rekindle, as you say, that civic relationship, that relationship that says, maybe you're smart enough that you might be able to teach me something. Maybe I'm smart enough that I might be able to teach you something. And we can always have a good conversation, right? Where where together we we both are able to learn. For, and I think the way that I see it is like, if every single person has a different life experience, if every single person has a different perspective from which they're seeing the world, maybe they have something that would be valuable for me to see as well, right? And right. and I think we, we kind of need to get back to that place. But one thing that you said in an interview, which just blew my mind because I saw so much of myself in it <laughs> was okay. you, you said, um, you said most people, when they come up with the arguments that they have for, uh, for politics, they don't learn their arguments from the people who think differently to them. They go straight to the sources that perfectly agree with them. And then they take those arguments. Right. Oh, yeah. And I was like, Oh my gosh, how many times do I like, think that I have a strong argument because I've listened to some guy or some girl who's like saying exactly what I want them to hear. And then as soon as I get into that discussion, I'm just shut down immediately. Right? Like how do you, I think a lot of people are actually after this and I'm after this answer as well. How does a person rationally and thoughtfully work through coming up with what they actually believe politically? To the extent yeah. that they can. I mean, I, I know that there's a lot of biology there that like can, to yeah. some extent, determine what you're going to think politically. But yeah, to the extent and, that they can, how can they do that? Yeah, so it's a it's a it's a hard process, and and um, one of them is uh, is right this this um, this read widely uh, principle, which mm-hmm. is um, look uh, there's a mill there's a John Stuart Mill's on liberty has got a great line, which is those uh, who <clears> don't know. The arguments for the other side don't understand his own, those who don't don't understand their own views. Yeah. Um, if you, and so the thought is, uh, 
there's a deep version of this and a sort of a shallow version, and both of them look like they're able to get plenty of the deep version is that um, every view is really intelligible dialectically as 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 part of a conversation. Mm. And so the reason why we say most of the things we do, the reason why we propose certain things is because of the fact that they're the products of a sort of a long ongoing process of this view being the right being the right thing to say now. Mm. Uh, and so, uh, understanding the conversation that's yielded the view, and that means understanding the critical, the the the, the critical relationship to a contrary, uh, mm. and so that's the sort of the deep version of the view that that political views have got the political and really pretty much any view uh, has kind of got that dialectical background that makes mm. it so that its content is what it is. Um, yeah. the, the weaker version of the view, now that's the sort of the philosophical heavy breathing about, uh, about what meaning is and things like that. And that's controversial. The less yeah. controversial and weaker version one is that, uh, is that, uh, the best way to really comprehend your view is to be able to see the reasons for it. Mm. And to see the reasons for it is to see what the quality of the reasons for it are. Uh, that you don't really so understanding something isn't just sort of seeing what makes it true. It's seeing uh, why it's true, what its mm. consequences are. Right? Uh, that's what really understanding is. And so being able to see that means that you need to be able to see ways that it could be false. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Why those? Re why these reasons support that? Explain why certain other alternatives are not correct. Uh, and yeah. so that understanding is something. So then that's a sort of a more of a kind of a theory of what understanding mm. understanding is uh, uh, what the what the sort of the relevant contraries are and why this one and not those other ones. Mm. Um, and so uh, and so being and so one of the nice things about whatever that is, is that you have to you have to uh, understand the contraries, not from the perspective of your view. Right. The contraries from the perspective of your view are all going to look false. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, and 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 so that's not really understanding them. Right. They just uh, that uh, seeing what 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 might make them look true mm. and seeing them as false doesn't do that. Seeing them from the inside. Uh, and that requires a kind of plasticity of mind uh, yeah. that you work up by uh, reading, reading things and uh, hearing things from the perspective of folks that you don't uh, that you don't agree with. Um, mm. And there's something dangerous with that. Um Anyone who's uh, seen the Lord of the Rings or read the Lord of the Rings knows that uh, the white wizard Saruman is interested in Sauron and he talks with him and then he gets converted. Yeah. Right? And this was yeah. the worry that this is the worry that all of my academic friends have with me. I have uh, I have a regimen. So and I think of it as a regimen. Mm -hmm. um, I read widely and yeah. I listen widely. And that means that uh, my media um, consumption involves really f not really far right wing, but pretty mm -hmm. far right wing stuff here in the states, and yeah. also pretty far left wing stuff here yeah. in the states. Uh, and what regularly happens is that I tell people that, and they're like, "Aren't you worried that they're going to convince you of something?" And I'm like, <laughs> "I, a little bit, <laughs> right? I can't help." It was like, I like my views, and so I, yeah. if I change my mind, I'm going to be getting views that I don't like, but yeah. I'll like them. Right? Yeah. Um, but this is kind of if how they're correct, is. right? Like if it's correct, there's nothing bad about believing something that is true, right? Because <laughs> it's true. Right. If they've got and um, and and the thought is, is that I've got a I've got relatively good critical thinking skills, I think, and so yeah. uh, and so I don't think that I'm going to get blown over by some sort of rhetorical gust of wind or something like that. Yeah. Uh, but that's right. So are they wor Are you worried? Like that, right, Sauron going and sort of listening to Sauron for a little bit. The, the names are too close. But uh, the, the white wizard going and listening to the sort of element of all evil and then getting convinced by him. Yeah. Um, uh, that's the worry that, that often gets uh, put out. Um, yeah. But it turns out that, I mean, we'll put it this way. I mean, for the most part, um, uh, uh, a lot of, the, a lot of the, 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 the discourse out there is really sham argument anyhow. And so once yeah. you sort of show up with this like, okay, look, I'm really looking for an argument. I'm, not, I'm looking for a really good case for what we're looking for. Uh, it turns out that there's actually not – there's a lot of arguing but not a lot of argument if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think that makes perfect sense. Yeah, it's it's almost as if like, you know, when you look at it uh, from the perspective of looking at the crowd, right? The crowd is very angry right now. <laughs> like a lot of people are just like just back and forth, like 
nobody thinks that anybody else has a valid argument. Um, but what you're saying is we need to get back to that really respectful discourse kind of. And I, I watched a I watched I watched a a debate recently between two uh, two intellectuals, and it was it was like Marxism versus capitalism sort of thing, right? Okay. And I went into it thinking very much like, oh, I know exactly what I'm going to be thinking throughout this whole debate. But what I saw was two people who were just genuinely trying to have an a, a really good understanding between the two of them, right? And I was convinced of many arguments on both sides and, and not necessarily convinced, but I might say very interested in both both arguments. And I think that's the result, right, of, of having a... A, a, a good conversation that is based on the idea that we want to understand something. We don't want to be right. right? We, we want to understand something new here. And, and, and is, is that kind of the difference between like an argument and just arguing? I agree. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that uh, there are two components to it. One of them is again, the sort of the spirit with which you do it. Yeah. But I think there's another one and it's kind of, it's kind of like, um, it's kind of like with any we'll just kind of analogize this with relationships uh, for a moment. And again, it's not perfect. It's not a perfect analogy, but at the very least, it's a it's a good one, which is um, think of all the bad ways that you were good that like you had all of, your heart was in the right place with your first love. But yeah. think of just how bad you were at being a boyfriend. <laughs> then. <right>? Yeah, <laughs> like I was like like I, I truly loved my first the, the my first love. But yeah. I was just a sucky boyfriend. I was just bad at it, right? <laughs> yeah. Because I didn't have I didn't have the skills of expressing myself. I didn't really know exactly how to be truly respectful of another person. Uh, I, I like I was doing my best to be respectful, but mm. like I you know I just kind of sucked at it, right? Yeah. And why? Because I just because I didn't have any practice. Like this is my first time. This is my this is my first time being uh, being in a loving relationship. Uh, and so I. I I kind of sucked at it. I just was not good at it, and it took me a took me a couple took me a couple girlfriends before I got to the point where I was like, yeah, it turns out that I'm 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 an okay boyfriend now. Yeah, right? and it turns out that it's exactly the same. Uh, and 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 I took I took things personally, and I and all these sorts of things, right? Um, and it turns out that 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 kind of set of skills, um, personal skills, argumentative skills, skills of being able to let folks what you need. Uh, know what you need. Let folks know where, uh, when, when you've heard enough, and all mm-hmm. that other stuff to be able to understand what they're doing. All of those skills are ones that um, that require a lot of practice, mm. and the and and it requires actually. Uh, and one of the benefits that I had in my household was that my mom and dad were really good to each other, and mm. I was still bad. And I was still bad at being a boyfriend, even though I had a father <laughs> who was a really exemplary husband. Um, yeah, and so. And so, but imagine how bad I would have been if my father was not good to my mother. Mm. Um, and so what we need are people who have, who set those examples and also allow us lots and lots of opportunities to be bad at it, but not hold yeah. it against us. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, and so again, this is the reason why classrooms are so important. This is the reason why uh, online discussions are ones where it's like, if you screw up in an online discussion or something like that, you've got to be like, look, you know, don't hold it against folks. Why? Because of the fact that we're, we're trying to get better, right? Yeah. Uh, so having a little bit of a forgiving attitude about this, um, again, you know, at the sort of the higher echelons, this is kind of like, uh, or you think about this like as a soccer match or something like that. Sorry, football, uh, Londoners. Um, <laughs> last time I was in London, I saw the Millwall games. So uh, the, as a stoic as, as a as a fan of the Stoics, I I appreciate the Millwalls. Nobody likes us. We don't care. Uh, I I have I have I, I'd like to say I know what you're talking about, but, but I, not a I'm, football watcher. I'm, I'm not I'm not a football. See, I, I should have explained this at the start. I'm ba- I'm actually so you're you're half right there, right? I'm based in the Sunshine Coast in Australia, but my dad is from London, right? And so like like I'm I'm like half British. So I know I should know about these things, <laughs> but I have no so, idea. I, so you're in Australia now. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, you know, I had a, so there was. A, I thought that I saw a a, a note, on, a tag on your. Um, so I hope that this is not going up on the web. Uh, but uh, a a, um, uh, a tag in your email saying something that saying saying that there was a something that I was, your address was in London. I thought that I had missed. I, I thought. I, okay. Maybe well, one day, so, look, I have a British passport, so let's just say that you're <laughs> half right, right? Like, we'll, <laughs> we'll, I'm, I'm not hurt okay. at all, so let <laughs> Okay, 
my apologies regardless no um, apologies necessary but 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 you know but i see the point that you're making there and I, and I really love it i think i think i think the general idea is that you come to a discussion with a a view to learn something and and with a view that look you're not a perfect human being they're not a perfect human being um, but together, maybe maybe we can come to a better understanding, right, about these really difficult subjects. And um, on, on that note, uh, you know, I want to segue. Uh, cool, let's have a discussion. So, late-term abortions. What do you? Th- no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> We're not, not going to start. I've got, when, I've got views, but uh, right, I'm not an expert, but I'm no, happy to let, happy to share. Anyhow, <laughs> that's not the purpose of this show. Yeah, but. Yeah, um, <laughs> You know, I was thinking about, as you're talking about that, I was thinking about the, the Stoic approach. And, and, you know, you even look at Seneca, and he was somebody who would often go to the views of Epicurus, right? And say, and, and, and he would say all the time, like, you know, just because this is kind of our rival philosophy doesn't mean that we shouldn't look at it. Like, I should be constantly watching them almost like a spy, right? Seeing what the other side's doing, because they might have something valuable to say. And then you also look at what they did in terms of negative visualization, which is a brilliant technique if you're thinking about debating, right? It's like, what are all the possible ways that somebody could could tell you that you're wrong? And if you find some good, value, you know, valid arguments in that arsenal of arguments, then you either need to change your opinion or figure out how you might be right, you know, but... Um, you know, like it's a brilliant technique, right? Have, have you used that in terms of your, or I guess you kind of do, right? Negative visualization. How could I be wrong and figure it out? Oh, absolutely. And so, um, so there are, there are two parts to this. Um, one of them is, um, the reason why Seneca had to have all the proleptic things about like saying, Hey, you know, I know that I'm a stoic, but Hey, you know, the, 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 the Epicureans have got stuff to say too. the truth belongs to every, to all those who are interested Mm. in wisdom. Um, uh, the first thing is that, uh, is that one of the reasons why he had to say that was because of the fact that the, the schools Mm -hmm. were, uh, highly insular. And, mm-hmm. and, and so that was when one cast one's lot, uh, intellectually, uh, the school going to school in philosophy, wasn't like going to a philosophy department now where you've got, you know, we've got an X and a Y and a Z and a person who thinks that X, Y, and Z are nonsense. And, yeah. um, uh, that you might say pluralism in philosophy schools wasn't the case then they were schools and they were dogmatic and in both the sense that they liked, which was that they had truths that they reminded themselves of and lived in light of, but also in our sense in which they, uh, for the most part, held each other in contempt. Mm. Uh, and that shows up, uh, especially with someone like Cicero earlier, um, really showing a lot of contempt for some uh, rival schools when speaking in the, the, the voices of some of the, some of the representatives. Mm. Um, so uh, so that's, that's one of the first things, which was... Uh, uh, for as mu- for as open-minded as we would like to conceive of our intellectual ancestors, um, for the most part, they were a lot of all-in dogmatic dogmatic programs. And yeah. the, there's a reason why the skeptical criticisms had the bite they did uh, on these programs, uh, mm. uh, and, and it had to do with the fact that uh, the you might say the intellectual incuriousness that happened in a lot of the schools. Seneca mm. is in this regard a kind Seneca. And in some ways, Cicero's later um, uh, uh, um, eclecticism is a little bit of an outlier in that regard. So I, I agree with you that Seneca is a good model, but uh, but it's because of a sort of a really significant background of these schools being being highly regimented and not mm. really. Uh, in fact, even in fact, even kind of looking at those who um, who left them as in some ways real disappointments. Um, mm. We even have the story. So just as a, a background about that is that yeah. we even have that story of uh, Diogenes of Heraclea, uh, who was one of Zeno's, the Zeno of Sidium's, the first students. Um, and uh, after a while, he's does, he's not coming to Zeno's lectures anymore. Zeno, the the Stoic, he's not coming to Zeno's lectures anymore. It's like what the hell? What the heck is this guy? He shows back up, and it turns out that he had um, he had had to pass a uh, a kidney stone. And he said, and he returns, and he informs everyone, "I've learned something very important, and I'm no longer a stoic because I know now that pain is a bad." 
That's brilliant. I love those little tidbits, those little that's moments great, that we. It's <laughs> a really great little story. Um, but it's great. Uh, but it is a it is a it, it is one of these kind of cases where, and again, it has to come. And by the way, that story did not come from any Stoics. It came from critics of the Stoic yeah. uh, of Stoic. Uh, it's told by, uh, on the one hand, Diogenes Laertius, and uh, Cicero gives a puts that puts that in the mouth of an Epicurean. Uh, giving yeah give and needling a stoic in the in the tusculan disputations so it's a good it's a good story and it's clearly one that sort of the stoics had to sort of and it and it scored two points right it was a it was on the one hand hey you know you say that pain's not really a bad what about like really significant pain and moreover yeah. someone who was a convinced stoic got convinced by the pain yeah. uh, that it was a bad so it was a sort of a double a double move um <laughs> So the second part of that uh, of the answer is is that uh, being be, being someone who's open to being wrong and these and and I like how, I like the term that you used uh, these negative visualizations uh, that is um, in some ways part of the training that I try to give my students. So mm. every paper that they write, I say your paper should have a handful of sections. You need to explain a problem to me. You need to explain the literature on how folks have been working on this problem. So give me, you know, tell me what the problem is. Tell me what the philosophical mm. problem is. Tell me a little bit about the discussion on the problem and where things are, you know, up to now on the problem. It doesn't have to be the sort of the 2,500 years on the problem. Just, you know, give me like, give me a quick account as to where folks have been working on the problem. Mm. Tell me what your move is. But then you need to be able to think of because if you if you're capable of telling the story as to the debate, you should be able to then take up the perspective of one of the positions on the debate and be able to say because if you can't, you don't understand the position on the debate. If you have no yeah. idea what someone who you disagree with would say back to you, right? Then you yeah. really haven't understood the debate. You really haven't mm. understood them. Again, that's a, kind of the million thought again, which is mm. if you can't think of an objection to your view, yeah. That, that's a problem because you just don't really understand then where the stakes are. So it's kind of like you have to play out the whole debate in your mind before you even have it, right? It's like right. you stand on this side, you give your argument, and then you go over here and you say exactly what they would say to you about that. And honestly, when you really think about it right, most of us have a pretty good idea at the back of our minds of what somebody could say to our argument. We just choose not to pull it out, right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. And and so, you know, you think of you think of all the debates that you've won in the shower. Right? Yeah. Think of all <laughs> those times to put it. Yeah. Right, that you really gave them what for, right? <laughs> yeah. Um th I think the 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 skill so that's that's no great that's no great uh achievement. Again, mm -hmm. that we've even got a, a term for it. Um instead instead practice the following. Uh imagine winning the debate with you in the shower yeah that's an exercise in humility right mm. um it is it's a it's a strange place to be um because then you come out and you're like now i don't know what i believe it's, <laughs> i just refuted i just repudiated myself right yeah you think yeah. i'm clean i guess at least at least i'm clean <laughs> yeah yeah that's it <laughs> No, I, I love that. I think I think it's so important. I th yeah, th this is the theme of today's episode. You know, it's like I think it's it's such an important discussion that needs to be had. It's how do we actually strengthen what we strengthen what is correct about our views, fix what is wrong about our views, and how do we have those conversations with people, right? And I think what's really interesting uh, today is I think we're having some sort of resurgence of intellectual thought in our society especially within america just because of the political system that it is right and and so what you have is you know you've got people uh you know arguing for the school of feminism you might say and then the school of individualism and then the school of determinism you know you've got sam harris there and then you've got uh you know resurgence of stoicism coming back the ancient ideas and and the schools of modern christianity or whatever it is like there's there's so many different schools you might say moving around with very avid supporters and avid debaters and i think it's as opposed instead of this being like a negative thing i think it's like a really exciting time to be alive where we have the opportunity to engage in some of the coolest debates that have ever been had in history right around some of the the most important 
topics that we've ever dealt with. Like, for example, you know, people debating uh, artificial intelligence now. One of the greatest threats and also opportunities, right? It's like you've got really smart people on one side saying this is going to kill us. You've got some really smart people on the other side saying this is going to liberate us. Man, we're dealing with some of the greatest discussions of all time here. And and I think it's really great that um, that people are moving in the direction of having these civil discourses is what I believe. Um, well, that is the puzzle, though. Uh, that's it. Namely that we've got all these resources. Yeah. Um, but nevertheless, if also so for as for as uh, um, as positive a story as we can tell, we can tell a very negative story, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and. Um, and so, uh, we can point to politics, uh, we can point to, uh, the way that a good deal of online discussions, uh, go. And again, we can choose our representative samples. Um, but think of the, think of how badly, uh, so many online discussions have gone. Um, and even when, when some sides have shown up with the objective of trying to be exemplary and be a, be a fair player, um, that I think that there's a there, there's another kind of there's a there's a sort of a strange paradox where on the one hand this could be seen as a kind of uh, a unique time where we've got this re- incredible opportunities and incredible resources and things mm. like that to really deepen ourselves and to deepen our connection with others, uh, but yet the amount of alienation, uh, the amount of intellectual, we might even call it intellectual hubris that kind mm. of sh- shows up with it. Uh, is is pretty astounding, um, mm. and we might even say like you know how little understanding there is. How well we can kind of put it this way: there's a there's this sort of phenomenon you might call it Google knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like you can type it yeah. up, and then you know, then you know. Something. If Google says it's right, why? <laughs> yeah, and it's just these sort of weird little pieces of knowledge out there, and so how much Google knowledge we've got, but how little understanding we have. Mm, yeah. How, exactly, that's how, so, oh man, that, that's powerful. How, how much Google knowledge we have, how little understanding we have. That might be the line of the episode so far. That's, that's so, <laughs> that's so important, right? It's so important. Yeah. Um, so the last, so I have one extra thing to say, which is, um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm a philosopher. Uh, I, I'm, I'm especially uh, especially interested in uh, discussions in the ancient world. Um, it was really the debates between the Stoics and the academic skeptics that uh, captured my imagination at the very beginning of mm. my career, and it's a place that I'm still kind of living these days. Um, and so uh, there were a lot of Stoic. So with regards to my own work, uh, there's the research work uh, and scholarship on the history of philosophy, but on my own productive stuff where I'm kind of working out a theory of knowledge or a theory about how, how we re- should reason together, it's not just the Stoics that have informed that view. Um, I think that there's a, a I'm, I'm, I'm kind of more like Cicero in this regard. I'm, a, I'm an academic skeptic first and a Stoic second. Uh, I really mm. appreciate the Stoics. I think that there's a, a deep insight to them and there's a lot to be gleaned from them, but there's a lot that I sort of have a pretty critical distance from, um, and, uh, and appreciate the, 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 the skeptical challenges, uh, Mm. of them and the certain kinds of academic skeptical, um, uh, attitudes, skills, uh, and comportments are ones that are also, I think, necessary, uh, Mm. partly because of the fact that the Stoics, uh, uh, one feature of Stoicism that, um, that may, be a kind of problem uh, is the fact that uh, the Stoics are committed to a pretty hard division uh, between uh, what's theirs and what's not. And mm. I'm unsure that that distinction, again, we might see it uh, most clearly in Epictetus's in Chiridion 1, right? What, uh, what's up to you and what's not. Mm. Uh, internal, the externals and the things that are uh, within your power, the things under, mm. uh, things according to you, or up to you according to nature. Um, I'm unsure that that's a sort of a really rigid distinction. I'm unsure yep. that that's something that, um, uh, I, again, I think the, the more that we know about uh, human psychology, uh, the harder it is for us to maintain that distinction. Mm. Um, I think that uh, that kind of control is something that is not really a psychological possibility. Um, 
And so the consequences that I think that Stoicism has offers us a lot, but I think that there are a number of features that we need to be able to manage that are sort of prior to uh, those kind of those, being able to exercise those Stoic virtues. Mm-hmm. Um, someone like Plutarch recognized this. He said that, like, look, I recognize that there is such a thing, uh, the possibility of the Stoic sage, but every Stoic sage will need to thank fate for making him immune to fate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah. in some ways, Marcus Aurelius is a great example of that, right? Like book one of the uh, Marcus Aurelius's meditations, where it's just a big, long thank you list. Mm. Yeah. All these votes, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, that's really a case for Marcus being able to recognize that the inner citadel is not something that he comes built with. Yeah. Uh, that yeah. be something that was constructed. He had in some ways to be lucky to be mm-hmm. able to build that. And again, it wasn't that he had to be lucky to have the money and things like that. He just had to have the right kinds of people around him to be a good yeah. example. Uh, and so he had to have the right teachers. He had to not be tempted to do the wrong thing and develop certain kinds of bad habits before he could be taught how to manage mm-hmm. himself. Yeah. Um, and so I think I think that there's a sort of a, 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 a feature of Stoicism that, that, that might yield certain kinds of... Um, uh, so here's one very simple one, which is if if there really is this in, this distinction, this deep division between what's up to you and what's not, and your mind and your aversions and your inclinations really are up to you, then there's a sense that like people who suffer from significant depression or yeah. psychosis uh, are in some ways complicit with uh, with that, and mm. I don't think that that's a very plausible commitment. Um, mm. I think that um, one can manage one's depression. Uh, with uh, with certain kinds of cognitive uh, behavioral strategies, but one cannot cure one's depression mm-hmm. with that. And yeah. uh, and I think that that's and I think that being able to recognize that is something that that uh, as a practicing stoic, I'm like by saying all this, I'm not saying boo stoicism or anything like <laughs> that. I'm saying that as a practicing stoic, I need to recognize the limits of my system. I need mm. to recognize that there are places where the ancient attitudes are ones that were rooted in uh, th- they came from a period that was that was you know th- they Seneca was wrong about so many things about the natural world right yeah. he thought that in natural questions he didn't think that rain could get 10 feet under the ground right like, <laughs> he, he he thought that it, uh, he the the they, they thought that the universe kind of ran like a kind of a kind of like a clock and that there was a mm. music of and things like that. That's just not true. They're just wrong about the natural world, and they're wrong about how human minds, how human, how the the background clockwork of human minds work. Mm. And so, um, and so, look, I think that I think that there are a lot of good lessons. Um, I think that there are a lot of places where Stoicism uh, uh, pays pays a lot of dividends. But I think that there are limits as to how descriptively correct the sort of the one of the core features of that system is actually uh, is mm. actually correct. Yeah, and I, I think it's a really important discussion to have, right? Because I, I think that the Stoics, as much as they, they had their limited understanding, they also had a culture of understanding that we need to progress the philosophy as time goes on because there's always better understanding, right? And so you'd, you'd hear Seneca saying stuff like, um, you know, there's there's not yet to be a monopoly on truth. Like there's there's always something else that we can learn and and... You know, one of the quotes that he really inspired me through is is where he says, you know, you say that Zeno said this, but what do you say? And then, you know, you say that he said this, but what do you say, right? Like, you need to say something to be handed down to posterity too. So, um, and and I think that you're you're so right. And I think that most people in modern Stoicism do agree that the line between what we can control and what we can't is somewhat blurred, right? There's, there's, there's very, there's a quite a vast array of things that we, you know, can neither control nor can't control, but it's kind of in between. Right. And, um, I think that's really important to recognize, but you made me think of an episode that I did a while ago, which I was basically talking about you're a human first you're a stoic, a stoic second, right? Like you need to recognize that as soon as you start to attribute everything positive to this philosophy, then it's not thinking anymore. It's just an ideology and that's just in your mind and you'll always think that that's correct. And, and that's, not the ha- that's not the way that they wanted it, right? Like they really wanted us to think about these things and they, they understood that they didn't have perfect knowledge 
And, and that's why I'm so excited about the resurgence of Stoicism, because what I'd like to do with this podcast is get to not just the teachings of Stoicism, but the essence of the philosophy. Like what, what did they want for us as human beings to be able to achieve in terms of our thought processes, right? And what um, can we make it? I, exactly. I mean, because we're the, we're the Stoics now. I mean, yeah. uh, we're not sages, but you know what? None of them were probably. I mean, yeah. there's a, uh, and so uh, there's one thought here, which is that Stoicism is an aspirationalist program, mm-hmm. uh, similar in some ways that we might understand Christianity to be. It's like, look, you make yourself alike to the Son of God. Uh, yeah. That's something that you can never achieve, but it's still you're better for trying. I think yeah. that Stoicism just doesn't have that doesn't have that divinity there, uh, yeah. but in some ways it's got that same aspirational program. Uh, yeah. The issue here is that. Look, in some ways, we are the inheritors of a tradition that that is, has, on the one hand, had its dogmatic elements, but also yeah. its self-critical elements. The Stoics yeah. disagreed with each other. The Stoics, and by the way, the Stoics also responded to academic criticism too. Mm. Uh, and so uh, that's that's a very clear indication, even from the very beginning. Um, uh, and so Arcesilaus and Zeno were in regular conversation, and Zeno's views were improved by the Sto- mm. by the skeptic Arcesilaus's criticisms. Yeah. And so Stoicism is not a static system. Stoicism is something that is kept alive. Uh, it, mm. it is, and 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 the second that it becomes something that. Uh, you can t- say someone's no longer a Stoic because they don't subscribe to Epictetus's Grand Division, or they're mm. not committed to the 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 sufficiency thesis that virtues the, that virtues suffi- not only the only good but sufficient for a good life. If you're not committed to that, then you don't no longer get to count as a Stoic. Um, I think that that makes Stoicism a dead dogma. Mm. Uh, that's a it's a it's a it's a it's a it's it, it's playing Roman. Now yeah. uh, we just play like we're pl- we pretend like we're Romans now. Um, uh, that it's a kind of uh, a- 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 uh, uh, antiqu- uh, you you just being an antiquarian, um, yeah. as opposed to being a living a living breathing philosophical program that uh, that they can disagree with each other. And that was the case mm. with the Sto- with the ancient Stoics too. Um, the ancient Stoics had a debate about like whether or not if if you said like look I mean Aristo Ariston of Chios and Chrysippus had a debate effect in effect that like look if there if you have if you think that the externals are things that don't matter or not things of value and it turns out that having money uh having uh having having health having status are externals and they are hmm. then they're not valuable and aristo then says well then why should i care if i'm sick you know like, I, yeah. I don't care like i don't care one way or the other whether yeah. i'm sick and chrysippus says well, you know, you still should you should still prefer to be to, yeah. to be well to being sick, and it's not just because of the fact that right. And so, this notion of the preferred and different then ha- was something that was a controversial feature internal to the Stoic mm. program, uh, and that you might say little that little thing right where it's like look, Stoicism's kind of got this weird thing to it, right? It's like if you really do think that externals are are uh, things that you should just be indifferent to, then does it matter if your orange juice has got, you know, pieces of broken glass in it? We're like, oh, it's an external. Why, yeah. why do I care? <laughs> um, and so, but the answer is, but the answer is, look, there are that if, if you kind of take Chrysippus's line, yeah, it turns out that they're preferred indifference. Why? Because mm. my job is to take care of this body, right? And this body is in some ways part of my duty to myself yeah. and to the world around me. And so I've got to prefer that this body stay healthy. Uh, yeah. And that's again, it's not a, it's not. A, I, I'm not harmed if the body is, if the body is. Uh, uh, I'm not harmed, and it's not a bad, but it's still preferable, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. This body, and it's, it's in the exact same reason why you, Epictetus makes a great analogy in the discourses. He's like, look, you know, you should take care of your body in exactly the same way that you take care of your garden tools. Mm-hmm. Um, like, look, it's a tool, right? It's a tool yeah. for you to do your job of, of putting the world in order, uh, and so you should prefer that it be. Should it be oiled after you use it in exactly mm. the same way which you should rest your body after exercise? Yeah. Um, so um, yeah. So I think that and, stoicism has to be a live do- has to be a live doctrine for us. It, we're the Stoics now. Yeah. We we decide what stoicism stands. Now. Yeah. Yeah. That that's that's so important. And and you know I think I think now we actually have so much information that we are able to include in our critical thinking that can help us to understand what is a valuable indifferent and what isn't right. So, so for example, if, if you look at your body, right, 
It's like the information that we have now clearly shows that there's some pro- there's some very valuable health markers that you should probably be trying to hit that's going to help you to live a better life, think clearer, you know, like there's there's definitely, you know, like eating healthy is so important. Like if you get to the point where you're just like, oh, it's just a body, you know, it doesn't really matter. No, it does matter because how you feel is how you think is how you live, right? And then even if you look at finances, it's like they've discovered that um, I think 75, maybe 80,000 now, if you make $80,000 a year, that's probably the cap where anything over that probably isn't going to affect your life in much of a way. So something I've been thinking about is like, hey, as soon as I hit that like, you know, 80,000, you know, that that, that marker, that's when I'm going to really start thinking, okay, cool maybe anything over that can be used for some sort of good charitable purpose. Maybe anything over that goes towards something that could help others around me as opposed to just, you know, taking it in because it's not necessarily important or valuable, right? Yeah. And and notice, by the way, that, that the ethic behind that is a kind of cosmopolitan ethic, which is mm. that it's not about, it's that, that it's not just about your own happiness, yeah. right? you are being useful to those around you and it yeah. doesn't matter whose happiness it is, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that you seeing yourself as having a duty to you is one thing and to the folks just in your just immediately around you, but you have duties to, to, to people in virtue of their humanity, mm. in virtue of your shared, that shared uh, presence that we have here in this world. Uh, yeah. And again, I think, that, I think that stoicism is really the the ancient philosophy that's able to capture that commitment that yeah. look we share something with other folks and we owe something to them uh, yeah. epicureanism is terrible at that uh, the epicureans <laughs> are like i mean the the epicureans were very famous about like la, uh, what we see from like lucretius's um de rerum natura he opens book two saying you know what you should feel really good whenever you see a ship and the ship out at sea foundering and all those people splashing around in the water drowning because you're not them yeah that, you should you should pat yourself on the back because that's it be be pleased that you're not yeah. them like don't 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 get don't get caught up in feeling bad about them that's yeah right find a way to feel good that you're not them uh yeah that's a that's a what a what a horrible place to be as a human yeah. being uh again that's that's kind of throwing the epicureans on the, the bus and things like that but that's a sort of but mm. the epicurean the, but the stoics were so good at being able to see you having a kind of obligation to mm. the rest of humanity, uh, just in virtue of your shared humanity. That's something yeah. really important and something that um, uh, that in some ways was really hard for someone other other than the Stoics to be able to think. Uh, I mean, even someone like Plato, who's like committed to justice and the harmony of everything, uh, whenever you look at his perfect states, the only folks that really count were the citizens of that state. You didn't mm. really care about non-citizens or citizens of other states or something yeah. like that. Um, and so, uh, uh, the, the owing something to others just in virtue of your humanity—that's uh, a—that's a big thought. And the Stoics were the first to really get good at thinking that. Mm. And and what I'm interested in in that line of thinking is, what where is the line right between when you move from see i know that by helping yourself that's in a way helping others because the stronger you are as an individual the more influence you can have on other people's lives right you can you can help more people when you feel better um so what i'm interested in is always like that line between helping yourself and helping others because what you see when people go too far in the direction of helping others is they don't have time to look after themselves and so therefore they're not able to help as much as they possibly can and you see this with nations as well. What a nation, in my opinion, should do is focus first on strengthening its base so that it, it's got a strong position so that when others need help, it can be there, right? Yeah. So what's that line? What do you think? Do you think did the Stoics talk about this line a lot or? Well, so here's a here's a funny thing. Um, for as uh, uh, for as clear as the Stoic, Stoic sort of general value theory was, uh, it was not uh, a value theory that yielded a lot of um, procedures for you to be able to identify the perfect decision in many cases. Yeah. And so uh, and so, the, and in fact, 
the Stoics were pretty famous for having debates mm. uh, about this. So a very, very simple example, uh, which was um, uh, uh, about how uh, obliged you are to be informative about all the conditions bearing on an exchange. Mm. Uh, so here's the, here's the setup. Uh, you're a grain trader. You are arriving at a port at a town that uh, hasn't had grain delivered in a while. You know that they're going to pay a premium for the grain coming in, mm. uh, and so uh, so it's a town. It's, so you are you are sa- making a sale under conditions of relative scarcity, right? Mm. Yeah. And so the Stoics never say it's okay for like if they're willing to pay, like they never say uh, under conditions of relative scarcity it's okay for you it's okay uh, it's not okay for you to jack up the price they, yeah. they didn't say that and there were no discussions about the about price fixing or gouging mm. or anything like that uh, but uh, it was it was the issue was not uh, whether or not it was okay for you to pay the price that they were willing to pay or uh, charge the price that they were willing to pay. It was whether or not you were obliged to let them know that another shipment of grain is coming in in about a half a day behind yeah. you. You had the faster ship and you got there before the other ship and you went yeah. and 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 they don't ask right. And the important thing is that they say and that part of the setup is. They don't ask about whether or not the ship, the second shipment of grain, mm. is just behind, right, just behind you, uh, and so you are selling under conditions of relative scarcity. It's not going to be for much longer. They don't mm. know that it's not going to be for much longer, and so um, the the Stoic Musonius Rufus, Epictetus's teacher, uh, mm. before he was manumitted, uh, had had regular debates about these sorts of things. And like, look, Stoicism's got a sort of a is is a is is a system to, that's supposed to be able to kind of tell you what the good is, but it turns out that like deliberating about virtue is something that requires that you kind of like. Well, it looks like we've kind of got hard cases, right? And like mm. so, and and the interesting thing about stoicism is that it's it's a story that's supposed to be able to tell you here's a good way to think about easy cases, um, and some. So here's a cool thing about some ethical theories: there some ethical theories are built to be able to handle hard cases. Right. They're yep. built to be able to be like, look, I'm my job right now is to be able to come in and be able to manage a hard case. But then they sort of but then they sort of make easy cases weird. Um, and so uh, and then uh, but then there are other cases. There are other ethical theories that are made to be able to sort of, OK, look, we're going to get all the easy cases right. And then just mm-hmm. be able to be like hard cases. Hey, that's a hard case. We're not, <laughs> we, yeah, we yeah. can explain what yeah. makes it. We can explain what makes it a hard case, but we can't tell you what to do in them. Uh, yeah. And that's kind of what stoicism is. Stoicism is a is a program that says, "Look, we've got we've got you set up so that you can handle a lot of easy cases. Mm. Uh, that our program is to be able to sort of be like live a life so that you get all the easy cases right, and that we work on deliberating and debating and talking about the hard cases. And so long as we're looking at you coming in and exercising the virtue of being an irrational creature trying to do your best in the hard cases, that's actually where the good is. Right? Again, mm. the good is in the virtue." Right, the goods yeah. in you exercise in the virtue, and then you trying to be as thoughtful and trying to do the right thing under these conditions—that's the thing that matters the most. Yeah. So, uh, the sa- I think the same thing goes with the sort of the where's the line. The where's the line issue is a hard case, right? Where it's like, look, you know, under conditions of scarcity, uh, I like, I mean, every every parent faces this, right? Mm. Any yeah. if you've ever. If you or if you've ever taken care of someone who's 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 who who's who needs you a lot, right? So a, a sick parent or a dog or something like that, you're like, look, you could completely throw yourself into it and yeah. be the best nurse for them as you can be and neglect yourself, but that's sustainable for only so long. Hmm. What's the right proportions? And the answer is, look, I mean, this is the reason why you have to get good at easy cases. And this is the reason why you have to get good at being rational, because it Mm. turns out in those kind of hard cases, the equitable decision is one that sort of is not one that's the product of a kind of a plug, you know, that you you crunch the numbers and you get an answer. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, stoicism's not stoicism's not good at that. Stoicism's good at easy cases, and then and then being able to say like, look, you know, if you're if you're del- the very fact that you're deliberating about this means that your heart's in the right place. You know, mm, do your best. Yeah, right? yeah, and I think I think it um, comes back to something that Seneca said as well, which is, uh, you know, as long as you live, keep on learning how to live. Right? There's there's always something else that you can learn. There's always some better way that you can deal with a situation. But as long as you keep on learning, your your heart is in the right place, as he said. You know, you're you're looking to improve. Uh, you know, I think that's a really beautiful way to put it. And and I think that there's, and, and I also think that there is a lot of value in 
coming to a difficult problem knowing that it's a difficult problem, right? Like, you know that it's not just going to take overnight to fix it. You have to really think about this. You have to find the right tools that are going to get you in the right position. And just by virtue of you knowing that it's going to be like that, that can put you in the right state of mind, right, to actually deal with it better. And I think that that's the case also being able to look at others' decisions too, recognizing mm. that uh, that uh, that even if you think that you might have done something differently, uh, recognizing that others are, are looking at hard cases uh, yeah. maybe they are, maybe there are other factors that, uh, are not accessible to you from your vantage point. Um, recognizing that there are hard cases and that even if it looks simple, looks like a simple truth or a simple decision to you, uh, sometimes they can be from other folks' perspectives, given yeah. other things that they're man, other values that they're managing, yeah. uh, that, uh, they can be harder cases. Uh, yeah. and so, um, that attitude of being able to recognize that difficulty in others is is, 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 is is an important one. And again, I think that stoicism gives us a lot of tools to be able to do that. Hmm. I love it. I, I think this is a good place to wrap it up, actually. I think uh, okay. this has been such a fascinating conversation. There's probably about 10 notes that I took here that we haven't even got a chance to get to in the conversation, but I think that's actually <laughs> a sign that this was just a beautiful conversation, just trying to figure out a few things. And um, Scott, I want to have you back as many times as possible. So like with all my guests, the open invitation. Great. Well, uh, look, uh, you make your make your rounds and then come back around. Uh, this was a real pleasure to talk with you. I really appreciate the, the, the time that you put in uh, preparing for this and the time that you had with me. Uh, this was a real pleasure. Thanks. All right, so there you have it, my interview with Professor Scott Aiken. Now, make sure you head out there, grab his book, head to the links in the show notes, let him know how much you appreciated him coming on the show. And uh, as I said at the start, I'm going to have him back time and time again because uh, just such an interesting guy, great conversation, and uh, we want to keep on getting that kind of information out to you guys. So thank you so much for listening, and I'll talk to you next time. But until then, I hope that this episode has helped you on your rise to the good life. Ciao. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Practical Stoic Podcast. If you'd like to stay up to date with the Practical Stoic community and everything to do with this podcast, then just go to my website, simonjedrew.com and subscribe to the Practical Stoic Weekly, a newsletter that I send out every week with updates and all sorts of great Stoic insights. You can also find me everywhere online by searching Simon J. E. Drew. See you next time.